from the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association, welcome to Volume 40, Number 51, our Christmas 2020 and special 40th anniversary edition of Grapevine. This is online version number 39, recorded on the 18th of December 2020. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, joined by this week's newsreader Andrew, plus Margaret C, Desney, Dusty, Julie, the other Margaret, Jackie, founder member Rex, and His Worship the Mayor Councillor Michael Geel, all coming together for both a Christmas and a special grapevine celebration. So a packed edition bursting at the seams, but first, and as usual, here's Andrew with the news. Hello everybody, it's Andrew with you this week for a special edition, special because it's our Christmas edition, and even more special because for this week we're back in the studio, because I have two guests in today that uh, we'll be looking to chat to, Safely socially distanced, of course. So uh, let's get on straight away with the news. A new university campus is set to breathe life into the town centre under a £60 million vision to boost jobs, industry and culture in Great Yarmouth. The learning hub in the former Palmer's Beals store would see a relocated library sharing space with students on undergraduate courses affiliated with the University of Suffolk and potentially the University of East Anglia. The move into higher education is part of an ambitious vision set out by Great Yarmouth Borough Council as it bids for a £25 million town deal, set to deliver at least £60 million in investment. Key projects include the Learning Campus, the Seafront Winter Gardens, the redevelopment of North Quay and an operations and maintenance hub at the town's Deepwater Outer Harbour. The port is billed as ideally placed to capitalise on the green energy boom and recapture the glory days of the oil and gas industry. Council Chief Sheila Oxtoby said the money would help to accelerate economic growth and that if all the projects went ahead as planned, the town would look, quote, completely different in a decade's time. A new learning centre and university campus, co-located with a new town centre library, offering more ways and opportunities for people of all ages to take their learning and job prospects to the next stage and the council has said that it will look after other buildings in the town centre if Palmer's cannot be secured. Plans also include a new operations and maintenance centre with business incubator units at South Deans, unlocking and enabling further investment by the energy sector and providing a local base for energy sector startups, relocations and growing businesses. Restoration and sustainable repurposing of a number of historic buildings is also on the list, including the Winter Gardens and the restoration and adaptation of the Ice House as a national centre for arts and circus. The town deal funding would plug an existing funding gap of around £4 million for the Winter Gardens, with the Heritage Lottery Fund being asked for around £10 million. Enhancements to the railway station gateway and North Quay, as well as improved pedestrian and cycle links between the town centre and seafront, along with enhanced public Wi-Fi infrastructure, are also included in the plans. Ms Oxtoby stressed not all the projects were dependent on funding with the revamped marketplace, the conge redevelopment and the new marina centre already secured. Creating jobs and learning opportunities for young people who often went away to grow their talents was one of the main drivers, 
as well as looking to build on all the tourism and cultural assets that made the town popular. Council leader Carl Smith said it was the chance of a lifetime as the town's aspirations were harnessed and turned into deliverable projects that would make a real difference. Leader of the Labour group Trevor Wainwright said the town centre learning hub could be the saviour of the marketplace. The bid has been shaped over 18 months, led by a town deal board of local ambassadors, working with the borough council and through feedback from two public surveys. Henry Cater, chairman of the town deal board and high steward of Great Yarmouth, said the bid was a ray of hope, adding, we all need to look to the future with aspiration. We expect to hear the outcome in the new year and the next stage will be to work up a detailed business case for submission during 2021, he added. And Brandon Lewis, Great Yarmouth MP, said the application made a compelling case. As the Member of Parliament for Great Yarmouth, I passionately support this bid and look forward to banging the drum for it in Westminster, he added. Well, that's got to be good news to go into 2021 with. And some more good news to go into 2021 with, with work on the third bridge across the Grivapierre due to begin next month. But, of course, it will bring some temporary traffic measures to the town. Last month, the government approved funding worth £98 million for the long-awaited Third River Crossing, linking the A47 at Halfridge Roundabout to the Port and Enterprise Zone on the other side of the river. It is hoped the bridge will support economic opportunities in the wider borough as well as ease congestion in the town. The project will begin in January with the upgrading of William Adams Way and the construction of a new roundabout. The work will involve three overnight closures of William Adams Way between Suffolk Road and Beckles Road from 8pm to 6am on Friday January the 8th through to Monday January the 11th and this is to facilitate the safe removal of the existing pedestrian overpass. A pedestrian diversion will be in place throughout the works and the finished project will see the installation of a new pedestrian crossing on William Adams Way and a temporary 30 mile an hour speed limit will be in place along the road from January the 11th which will remain in place for the duration of the project. Be prepared for that one. In addition to the job on Williams Adams Way, roadworks are also planned for the junction of Queen Anne's Road and Southtown Road. And the junction onto Southtown Road will be reopened to allow access to be maintained when the existing Queen Anne's Junction onto Suffolk Road is permanently closed to vehicles and pedestrians from June 2021. During the project, more than 50 local employment and training opportunities will be created by the main contractor, BAM Farrens, and of course the wider supply chain. Tony Mulholland, BAM Farrens Joint Venture Project Director, said, Whilst constructing the new bridge, our positive presence in Great Yarmouth will be felt through the community engagement, local recruitment and local spend. We will be working with local schools to involve children in the project and will be encouraging local businesses to become part of the supply chain. We'll also be working with Norfolk County Council and Norfolk Chamber of Commerce to provide more details on these opportunities in the coming weeks. Well, we've waited a long time, but that's got to be good news. Let's move away from local projects now to local entertainment. And the Mercury Stacia Briggs has uh, been to see the Jay family's Christmas Circus Spectacular. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and here's her report. After the horrific year we've all had, the circus is the perfect antidote. Magic, glitter, daredevil acts, laughs, acrobatics, big musical numbers, light shows, fireworks, thrills and spills, and a balloon so big it can swallow a human. For an audience with Zoom fatigue, 
the sheer joy of being back seeing live entertainment, safely it goes without saying, the audience had been pared back to a third of what it usually is and social distancing was in place, but it had me welling up at points. I have missed live performances and seeing actual 3D people so much. All hail then the J family for refusing to give up and for having safely opened in the summer, at Halloween and now at Christmas. And we've never needed a circus more than in the last few days of the worst year that most of us can remember. You can lose yourself entirely in this fast-paced festive show and forget what lurks outside that famous building in the not-so-magical real world. And what a fantastic gift that is this Christmas. The show is without an interval to avoid crowds gathering in communal areas and it runs for around 75 minutes and it's absolute non-stop entertainment. It's a skill in itself when you fail to spot the changeovers between acts, which normally happened when everyone was out of their seats buying popcorn. In addition to the resident Estelle Clifton dancers and swimmers, always a treat of course, artist coordinator Christine Jay has gathered performers from around the world to bring a kaleidoscope of jaw-dropping acts to Great Yarmouth. Norfolk's comedy favourite Ben Langley is back in the ring after his first season in 2019, and he's so at home at the Hippodrome it feels like he's been there forever. He and host Jack Jay have a wonderful rapport, and the pair are such natural physical comedians. There's a routine that involves Ben and a giant balloon, which had me laughing into my mask so hard I almost inhaled it. After a year when we've been so restricted as to what we can do, and where large-scale entertainment has mainly involved sharing a picnic in a bitterly cold park with five other people, the Hippodrome's Christmas Spectacular feels even more special than usual. More than that, it's a snapshot of what we hope 2021 will hold in store. More live entertainment, more shared experiences, more fun, more life. The show, which runs until January the 10th, 2021, can only be booked through the Hippodrome's ticket hotline, which is on 01493 738877. Well, that's great to hear a really positive review. And again, well done, Peter and family, for putting on such a great show for us again. An historical coastal pub is set for an exciting restoration. The Iron Duke, a listed pub famed for its Art Deco design on Great Yarmouth Seafront, has been derelict since 2008. But on Tuesday the 15th of December, Great Yarmouth Borough Council agreed a loan enabling the town's preservation trust to buy the building from its current owners, Bourne Leisure. Three years ago, amid concerns the former pub could be demolished, it was designated a listed building. After the sale, the Trust will use its own funds to undertake emergency repairs, making the building wind and weather tight, before undertaking feasibility work to develop a scheme of repair, in addition to exploring external funding options for restoration. Bernard Williamson, chair of the Trust, said, We're delighted that the sale of this important historic building has been agreed and we hope we will complete and take ownership before the end of the year. This will be the beginning of a very exciting restoration project and more of the town's special heritage will be brought back into use. The continuing support of the Borough Council has enabled the Preservation Trust to tackle a number of buildings at risk which otherwise might have been lost. Councillor Carl Smith, the council leader, said The Iron Duke contributes to the special character of the borough and is part of this 20th century history. We are pleased to be supporting the Preservation Trust to purchase this historic building in order to preserve and breathe new life into it for future generations. 
pub was the work of the architect Arthur W. Ecclestone, who designed a number of pubs both before and after the Second World War, including the Clipper Schooner in Yarmouth and the Lynx Hotel in Goulston. And despite being incomplete, the Iron Duke opened in 1940 to serve the soldiers manning anti-aircraft guns on North Deans. It was finished in 1948, with its counters made from teak from Admiral Jellicoe's flagship, the HMS Iron Duke, that led the British fleet in the Battle of Jutland. That's things you didn't know you didn't know, isn't it? Well, it'll be nice to see the pub brought back to life. It's certainly an iconic building on there, and I'm sure many of us have many happy memories of it. Now, sadly, a charity Christmas meal has had to be cancelled. The traditional Christmas event for homeless and vulnerable people on the East Coast here has been cancelled due to coronavirus restrictions. The Great Yarmouth Open Christmas Meal is normally held on Christmas Day. And the event, which is organised wholly by volunteers with the help of donations, has run for 21 years and provides a free Christmas meal and festive cheer for people who would otherwise be on their own or have to go without on December the 25th. But Michael Hitchens, on behalf of the Great Yarmouth Open Christmas Committee, has announced that the annual sit-down meal will not take place this year. Alternative plans that we had in place unfortunately failed due to the unprecedented and fluid situation we've all found ourselves in, he said. The charity, in partnership with Better Together Norfolk and Great Yarmouth Minster, will instead distribute Christmas hampers on December the 23rd and 24th to many of those people who would usually attend the event. And hampers will also be available for collection from Great Yarmouth Minster on these days between 10am and noon. For more information about the Great Yarmouth Open Christmas 2020, visit its website www. and this is all one word, openchristmasgreatyarmouth.org. Well, that's a great shame for them. They've done such sterling work over these years, but let's hope they're back up and running next year. A shop owner in Great Yarmouth has uh, another take on the closures, and he said here that his independent gift shop sales have boomed. Paul Platten, who runs Something Different in Great Yarmouth's Regent Road, has seen online orders double since the start of lockdown in November. He's now sending out goods to the value of six or £700 a day, and that estimates that he is 20% up on last year. Instead of reopening when lockdown eased, he and his wife Beverly will be redecorating the shop ahead of February. Mr Platten said he has just signed a lease on the premises from January for another six years. He said last year they found the shop wasn't that busy in December, but they did get a lot of customers who were tourists coming to Norfolk for the Thursford Christmas show, which of course has been cancelled this year because of Covid. We actually closed down for a month last year after December the 14th, as people simply did not come, he said. February half-term onwards is actually much busier. Mr Platten, a former accountant, took over the shop two years ago after suffering some health problems. He stocked arts and craft items, gifts, accessories and jewellery. But he has found in particular items used for jewellery making, such as beads, have really taken off, with more people at home, more time on their hands and perhaps deciding to make presents. And he prides himself on very few returns. Out of 31,000 orders, he said, I've only had 42 queries with people wanting to return items and only 20 of them actually sent back. And he uses platforms such as Amazon and eBay as well as selling direct. Most independent businesses are so desperate to keep orders they do give a good service, he added. He posted on Facebook the news to customers and said, since our planned holidays were cancelled in November, 
we decided to bring forward the changes in shop layout and decoration. We will therefore not be reopening until February half term to allow us to finish the restocking and take a few weeks holiday. The Town Council has promised to fix a number of street lights after a man claimed parts of Great Yarmouth Town Centre were being left in total darkness every night. Jamie Skinner, who lives in Middlemarket Road, said he reported an issue with faulty streetlights on a number of streets between the marketplace and seafront to the Borough Council in August. The communal area around Wellesley Road was pretty much in total darkness, he said, and it seemed to be a postcode lottery whether or not streetlights actually worked. I know a lot of the lights in Bradwell have new LED lights, whereas the ones in central Yarmouth don't, he added. It's terrible for tourism if the seafront is unlit. Most of the holiday accommodation is in that area. I think this area of Yarmouth is just forgotten about by the council. A council spokesperson said, During the first lockdown, our ability to respond to footpath lighting failures was severely restricted. However, reports continued to come in. Once lockdown was lifted, the priority on safety grounds was fixing lighting issues in the immediate vicinity of roads, due to the mix of pedestrian and vehicle movement nearby. Now that these works are complete, the areas surrounding passageways are being addressed as the next high priority, and the lights mentioned within that area will be addressed amongst this phase as soon as is practically possible. Mr Skinner said, It's important for areas to be lit because it helps fend off antisocial behaviour and fly-tipping. Well, it is true, and uh, the council have had many, many things to deal with this year. Unprecedented. Well, that's the buzzword of the year, isn't it? But uh, I'm sure they're going to get everything done for us. They normally do. And finally, a little piece of good news, a little piece of history as well. This is about a rural Norfolk railway station that stood the test of time. So when you think of a railway station, you might imagine big, bustling places with people rushing to catch trains. So much noise, so much going on. And then picture the Burney Arms in rural Norfolk. There is the platform set against the river, the marshes, the windmill and of course those wide Norfolk skies. While so many other small stations have closed, the beautiful Burney Arms still stands proud. And now a lot more people know about it. Earlier this month, the news that this was the quietest railway station in the whole country hit the headlines and spread the word of the Burney Arms far and wide. Now, just 42, that's right, 42, 42 passengers used the station on the single line track between Reedham and Great Yarmouth between April 2019 and March 2020. Mind you, there was a good reason for this, which was not widely reported at the time. The station was closed. Lucy Wright of Greater Anglia said, Burney Arms was closed from October 2018 until February 2020, while Network Rail carried out resigling work along the lines between Norwich, Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft. The station tends to be used by nature lovers and walkers, many of whom leave the train at Burney Arms and walk to Great Yarmouth, or vice versa. And Burney Arms is only accessible by train, foot or boat, as there is no road access. But it is of course a haven for wildlife and is very popular with bird watchers. It's a beautiful location and would make a great place for people to visit during the warmer months. It is ideal for a green day out. Now there is one person who knows more than anyone else about Burney Arms, Sheila Hutchinson. It was 20 years ago when she first wrote her wonderful book, Burney Arms Past and Present, which introduced us to the place and its people. Such great characters who lived a tough but happy life. As a baby, Sheila lived at Ravenhall Langley Marshes on the island 
opposite Burney Arms for about a year around 1947. I then lived at Number One Cottage Burney Arms with my parents Joseph and Ellen Williams, my younger sister Maureen and my younger brother Derek. In 1959 we moved to Numbers Six and Seven Cottages and lived there until 1963 when we moved to Cobham in Great Yarmouth. We were one of the last families living in the cottages at Burney Arms before they were pulled down, said Sheila, who went on to write many other wonderful books looking at Norfolk people and places. So, when we're allowed to again, when you feel comfortable again, hop on the train and head for Burney Arms and enjoy the Norfolk countryside in all its glory. Thanks, Andrew. Whilst that's all the news for this week, most of it good for a change, Andrew will be back a bit later with his Worship the Mayor and also giving me a grilling about 40 years ago and Grapevine Volume 1, Number 1, of which, incidentally, you'll be able to listen to Side 1, which we'll play at the end of this week's recording. Things Christmas now. Jackie is a voice you may recognise from pre-Covid news reading. She's several tales for us. Here are the first two. Good afternoon, everyone. It's been a while since I've been talking to you, so they've asked me to help out with a little bit of Christmas stuff, so I will just run through them for you here. The first one is called The Legend of Poinsettia. Pepita was a little girl who lived in a tiny village in Mexico. Every Christmas the village would set up a manger, like the one in Bethlehem, and all the villagers would bring gifts for baby Jesus and set them at the altar of the church. Pepita loved looking at the manger and seeing people bring gifts, but her family were very poor and had no money to buy gifts. One Christmas Eve, Pepita walked to the church with her brother Pedro. I wish I had a gift to put by the altar, Pepita said. Why don't you pick some flowers? asked Pedro. A gift doesn't have to be expensive as long as you have the right feelings in your heart when you give it. Pepita looked around but couldn't see any flowers. There were some green weeds growing at the side of the road but she'd feel embarrassed putting these on the altar. But there was nothing else and she wanted to give something. So she picked the weeds and her and Pedro walked on to the church. When they walked inside they saw the wonderful manger and the huge collection of expensive gifts. Some of the villagers smiled when they saw Pepita walk towards the altar with her bunch of green weeds, but no one laughed for they knew Pepita's family were poor and could not afford to buy a gift. Pepita laid the weeds down at the foot of the altar and turned to walk away. But she hadn't taken three steps before she heard the villagers gasp. She looked back to see the leaves at the top of the weeds had started to change colour. From a dull green to a beautiful warm shade of red. As she watched she saw the weeds burst into flowers, crimson flowers in the shape of a star. The village kept on its tradition of displaying a manger and bringing gifts to the church, but every year the middle of the display was kept for the poorest families of the village to bring the wonderful flowers that Pepita had brought. 
The villagers called them the Flowers of the Holy Night. They have become a symbol of Christmas for people everywhere. This is a little story and it goes as such. It was the day after Christmas at St Peter's Church in Galston-on-Sea, Norfolk. Father John the priest was looking at the nativity scene outside when he noticed the baby Jesus was missing from the crib. Immediately his thoughts turned to calling in the local policeman, but as he was about to do so he saw little Nathan with a red wagon and in the wagon was the little baby Jesus. Father John approached Nathan and asked him, Well Nathan, where did you get the little infant? Nathan looked up, smiled and replied, I took him from the church. And why did you take him? With a sheepish grin, Nathan said, Well, Father John, about a week before Christmas, I prayed to the Lord Jesus. I told him if he would bring me a red wagon for Christmas, I would give him a ride round the block in it. I like that one. Thanks, Jackie. Well, grapevine would not be grapevine. And Christmas would not be Christmas without Dusty. With apologies for the rustling paper noises, here's her 2020 Christmas contribution. Well, hello everybody. It's time for a bit of Old Norfolk's Quit. This has been written for our times by an old mother up on the North Norfolk coast. And it's very, very appropriate for what we're going through at the moment. So I'm just going to share this with you and it's called Six Foot Apart. There I sit amusing in my social isolation, a rum old job for all on us throughout our British nation. What can I do? I ask myself. Oh, I ain't want to sew or knit. I know, I say a chortling. I think I'll write some squit. To put a smile upon your face at this most troubling time. So here it is, from me to you, all writ to you in rhyme. Old Herbert was a gardener who lived alongside his wife. But as for matrimonials, <laughs> they weren't without their strife. Herbert, I can't be doing with you, say his wife, the more that Iris. Especially with you staying at home with this here coronavirus. Go do your daily exercise. You're getting on my wick. Go and get your high lows on. And do you make it quick. That's time to plant your taters. So do you get a going. Give me some peace and quiet on this lovely sunny morn. Don't you forget, she hollered, the important six-foot rule. Just like you to forget it, you duddering silly old fool. We owe it to the NHS, them doctors and them nurses. So do you do as you are told, or else you'll earn my curses. So off he go along the road. Oh, I must heed her instruction, else life wouldn't be worth a living, because there wouldn't half be a ruction. Here are my early tears. They're soften good, my heart. Better heed the government's warning and plant six foot apart. Oh, I got a lot left over. I fear for this year's yield. I need a big allotment, or else a grit old field. So here's my message to you all. If you'd not be a fool, when you go plant your taters, just heed the six-foot rule. P.S. 
I notice quite accurate, and I should of course go metric. But you'll have to make allowances for this old geriatric. <laughs> I think that's really rather fun myself, and um, it just shows you that uh, people do get under each other's feet at times like these, don't they? Well, now it's Christmas time, and a funny old time it is too. It's going to be a very different Christmas, isn't it? But um, it brings back lots of memories, and I'd just like to share a few with you um, of Christmas past. I'm sure you have your own, but let's have a little go at this, shall we? Because when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, Christmas Eve was a truly magical time. When Dad had finished his work in the afternoon, he would come home laden with either a turkey, a pair of pheasants, or a couple of rabbits. No mean feat on a pushbike. We would take them down the street to Mrs Banthorpe at the dairy, who would kindly put them into cold storage for us. And then it was time for the tree, and off we would trot to select one at the market and find that magical beast. Once at home, where Mum was busy making the, the uh, mince pies in the kitchen, we would get out the trimmings, and I remember they were just a lovely garland of oak leaves stretching across the room, and that lovely shimmering village scene, snow glistening on the church tower, always hanging in the same place on the wall. And then to the corner to dress the tree, and so began a magical process of transformation. The crowning moment when the fairy lights were switched on, those little globes of coloured lights dancing among the green of the pine never failed to delight me year by year and the beautiful scent that filled the room of cleanliness and nature. One minute, those lights were just a coil of little bulbs in a dusty old box of decorations, and the next, they had taken on a life of their own, each one glowing in its own special colour, occupying its own special place on the tree. One minute, the tree was just another little spruce from the market. The next, it had become an enchanted forest, full of mystery and promise. And all because Dad had connected each little bulb to the other. <laughs> when one didn't work, nothing happened. We've all been there, haven't we? And there was always one. But then Dad switched on the power. Suddenly, there was light. Together, they worked. And I think that the post office, who put a message on their envelopes this year, and I'll tell you what it was, it says, if you haven't noticed, let's talk loneliness. We can all help each other stay connected. And that little story of the lights on the Christmas tree just made me think that there might be something in that message for us to think about in these desolate times. And, you see, if we pull together and stay connected, I'm sure that we can defeat loneliness and by reflecting all that light into other people's lives, we shall light up the dark corners of our sad old world. 
and then maybe the new year will be a blessing to us all. And I'm reminded of those beautiful song which is called O Tannenbaum or O Christmas Tree. O Christmas Tree, how beautiful are thy branches. Never forget that. A Christmas tree can bring you joy even in the worst of times. And going on from that, I've been looking at my book again and I've come across um, an article which my, my late partner um, wrote some years ago. She was Welsh, bless her heart, and she absolutely loved Christmas. And she's written a piece here about Christmas in Wales when she was a child. For weeks and weeks before Christmas, preparations were underway for the happiest of holidays. From the windows and doors of small cottages and houses, smells of spicy puddings and cakes would waft, and the shops were gaily decorated with sparkling paper garlands and Christmas trees. My grandfather had a grocer's shop at the top of the small town, and I would help to display the festive wares. This small village, on the foot of the mountains, was bustling with excitement, and everyone was caught up in the joy of celebrating the birth of our Lord. Packages containing secrets were hidden, not very discreetly, mind, in cupboards and wardrobes, and a gentle squeeze when no one was looking added to the excitement. The seemingly endless Christmas cards were hung around the room. The day to which we all looked forward to so much was Christmas Eve, when the large family kitchen, ruled over it seemed by the black shiny coal oven, was mass-producing treat after treat, and the room behind the shop was declared open house. Visitors came and went, and the glass sherry decanter was filled and refilled, the mince pies unending. Just before 11pm, the large fire was banked, and we would put on our warm clothing and set off to church for the midnight service. The mountains were alight, as if by a thousand glowworms, as people from all walks of life made their way into town, the lanterns gleaming in the darkness. Homemade lanterns, candles in jam jars, lighting up the whole countryside, their faint smell hung on the cold night air. After the service we made our way home, and after a cup of hot soup I was tucked into bed and told that Santa was on his way. I was meant to sleep. Sleep seemed an impossibility at the thought of what was to come tomorrow, but it soon came. And as the light of day dawned, I would awake and creep slowly to the window and look out over the mountains, white with a steady falling snow. In those days in Wales it always snowed at Christmas. From the kitchen below I would hear the clatter of plates and knew my dad would be down there making breakfast. Not as quiet as he could be, because the highlight of his day was to see my face so he wanted me awake. All together now, the living room door was opened, and the glimpse of all the gifts neatly stacked beneath the tree would greet us. The large log fire was burning, and the whole house reflected the warmth and love of this truly family Christmas. 
But although surrounded with so much love, I was always made to remember the true meaning of this day and those not so fortunate as myself. Time passes and I have a family of my own, trying to keep up the traditions of my childhood Christmas. Maybe it is because I am older that progress has changed the face of Christmas. I wonder if the young are really made aware of the significance of the day that they are celebrating. Wise words from my old Margaret, bless her heart. She brought her family up to appreciate the true value of Christmas and I think of her every time in her home at Wales all those years ago and I think it's lovely memories to leave with you. I hope you enjoyed sharing that. Well, we look forward to more from Dusty during next year. Let's go back in time now as Margaret takes her regular Old Mercury slot to Christmas 1957. Now, keeping up the Christmas theme... I'm now going to meander through the Great Yarmouth Mercury and the headlines that caught my eye in December 1957, way, way back. Now, the first headline was officially opening of Great Yarmouth Girls High School. Now, there was a picture of Mrs K. M. Adlington, Mayor, who was Chairman of the Board of Governors, and Miss L. Cartwright, Mistress of Girton College, who performed the opening ceremony. Mrs Adlington was wearing a stunning hat and all the ladies in the picture also wore hats. My goodness, they were the days, weren't they? And an event that I suspect wouldn't have been conducted in a ladylike way was Free Christmas Show. Mr F. A. Wright, manager of the Regal Cinema, announced this week there would be a free film show at the cinema on the morning of December the 21st for any child aged between 5 and 15, and the mayor, Mrs Adlington, would also be present. I bet that got a bit noisy. <laughs> right, Mrs Adlington in the news again. What a busy lady. She visited Northgate Hospital, where she met the oldest resident, Mrs Emma Applegate, aged 94. And patients had their Christmas dinner of turkey carved on the ward by doctors. And the Christmas fair included 19 large cakes, 80 puddings and hundreds of mince pies from the hospital kitchens. Entertainment now. At the Regent was Alec Guinness in Barnacle Bill and John Wayne in Real Grande and An Affair to Remember starring Cary Grant. The Great Yarmouth Amateur Operatic and Dramatic Society was staging Cinderella as their pantomime. Twelve magnificent scenes with a cast of 60, including Marilyn Phillips, Diana Stonell, Linda Taylor, Jim Aldous, Jack Bacon, Frank Footer with the Phyllis Adams Juveniles. Seats six shillings to two and sixpence. And the Victoria Hotel was offering Christmas Day luncheon for 15 shillings per head and you could welcome in the new year with an old-time carnival ball at the good old Flora Hall. And tickets for that were three and sixpence. While the Star Hotel had a seven-course dinner the same night, tickets 15 shillings. 
Now, how could you spend your money in 1957? Arthur Hollis in the marketplace had New Zealand butter at two and sevenpence a pound. And David Greggs in King Street, now that was where they had the black and white tiles on the floor covered in sawdust. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> now they had Christmas cakes from 14 shillings and sausage meat two and sixpence a pound. Now to help you get into the Christmas spirit, divers were selling ginger wine at seven and sixpence a bottle, ruby port 16 and ninepence, solera sherry 17 and sixpence, three star rum 38 shillings and three star brandy at 36 shillings. Now if you had a driver's license in 1957 you could drive around the town showing off in an Austin A70 for £465, a 1955 Ford Prefect, red leather upholstery and a heater for £530. Or perhaps this would have been on your list to Father Christmas that year. Hannant's the toy shop had a popular car for three to six year olds, a Triang T-stroke 40B in brilliant two-tone finish with headlights and hooter for £5.19 and sixpence. Now to finish with, spotted in the personal column, anemia and lassitude. Kersley's pills have proved a very valuable remedy for ladies for over 150 years. One and tenpence and four and threepence from chemists. I'm off to buy up all the available stocks. Oh, if only. <laughs> now, what were you listening to in December 1957? Well, really, not a very Christmassy song, but it was Elvis Presley singing Jailhouse Rock. Now, that's it from me for another year. May I wish you all a very happy Christmas and a better 2021. Bring on the vaccine. back with the news on January the 8th 2021 for volume 41 number one. Now though the other Margaret gives us a Christmas piece from one of her favourite books. Hello everybody and um, this extract that I'd like to read to you comes from a beautiful book called The Dean's Watch and it was written by a lady called Elizabeth Googe. The action takes place in the mid-1800s, in a city up in the Fens, not really so far from us. In this extract, a disreputable fishmonger called Albert Lee, who has a shop in the slum district of the city, who's curiously befriended by the Dean of the Cathedral, a man both feared and respected. And on Christmas Eve, at the Dean's request, 
Albert goes up to the cathedral to take a brazier to warm dear old Tom, whose chilly job it is to guard the south door. And the carol service is about to begin. A few came in through the south door and Tom Hotchicorn gave them greeting as he stood bowing by his brazier. Albert Lee had worked quickly, had come by some charcoal and had it lighted and installed by the time the bells began to ring. He sat on the bench chatting to old Tom for a while and then as people began to arrive he took fright and was all for escaping back to his shop in Swithin's Lane. But old Tom grabbed him and held on with surprising strength. Go inside, Bert, he commanded. What, me? gasped Albert Lee. In there? Not be likely. Why not, Bert? Full of toffs, said Albert Lee. Here, Tom, you let go. I don't want to hurt you. You won't see no toffs, said old Tom. Not to notice. Just a lot of spotted ladybirds sitting on the floor. That's all they look like in there. You go in, Bert. Not afraid, are you? Afraid, scoffed Albert Lee. I ain't been afraid of nothing, not since I was born. Go in then, said Tom. He opened the door and motioned to Albert. Look here. See that pillar? The one by the stove? There's a chair behind it. No one won't see you if you sit behind that pillar. If you look round it when you hear the Dean speaking, you'll hear him. You'll see him. He had hold of Albert by his coat collar. Albert didn't want to make a scene or own himself afraid. He somehow found himself inside with the door softly closed behind him. Sweating profusely, he crept to the chair behind the pillar and sat down on its extreme edge. Oh, what a place! It was like old Tom had said. No one didn't notice you in here. You were too small. Oh, this was a terrible place. It was like night up there, but the door was near, and so was the homely-looking stove. For a while, his eyes clung to the door. And then, as the warmth of the stove flowed out to him, his terror began to subside. It was nice and warm in this corner. No one couldn't see him. He'd sit for a while. The bells were pretty, but he didn't like that great humming, rumbling music that was sending tremors through his legs. Then it stopped. And the bells, too. And there was silence. And then... Miles away, he heard boys singing. They came nearer and nearer, singing like the birds out in the fen in spring. One by one, men's voices began to join in, and then the multitude of men and women whom he could scarcely see began to sing too. The sound grew, soaring up to the great darkness overhead. It pulled him to his feet. He didn't know the words and he didn't know the music. But he had sung with the Romany people in his boyhood, sitting round the campfire in the drove, and he'd been quick to pick up a tune. He was now. He dared not use his coarsened voice, but the music sang in his blood 
like sap rising in a tree. When the hymn ended, there was a strange rustling sound, like leaves stirring all over a vast forest. It startled him at first, until he realised that it was all the toffs kneeling down. He knelt too, his tattered cap in his hands, and the slight stir of his movement was drawn into the music of all the other movements. For the forest rustling was also music, and that too moved in his blood. There was silence again, and far away he heard the dean's voice raised in the bidding prayer. He could not distinguish a word, but the familiar, beloved voice banished the last of his fear. When the prayer ended, he said, Amen, as loudly as any, and was no longer conscious of loneliness. From then on, until the end, he was hardly conscious of himself, and in truth, there were not many who were. Thanks a lot, Margaret. Over to Julie for her first piece. I think that I'd like to share this with you. Um, I, I've, I've very much appreciated how children have reacted this year. And this is a little story which is absolutely true. And throughout these strange times we've been living under this year, I feel that we've not given our little people the credit that they deserve. Everyone's been discussing the plight of our students studying at home and the disruption prior to important exams, leading to the possible loss of university places, and I can understand that. But think about the tinies. They too have been seriously affected. No school has been trying to learn even basic skills from parents who are not up to snuff with modern ways. Their routine, vital to a child, has been turned upside down. They've lost contact with their friends and the need to play and react is paramount to their development. Add to that everyone looking pretty scary wearing masks and no visits to and from devoted grandparents. But here's an example which I think we could all learn from. The other day I heard much clattering and excitement outside my front door and peeping out I saw my children friends. We'll call them Nancy and John. They were busily putting my Christmas card into my outside letterbox, which was truthfully a bit out of their reach, hence the noise. To their glee, I opened the door and listened to all their news and above their heads mouthed to mum, asking her if they were expecting visitors for Christmas. She openly then explained that her parents were coming, and that's lovely because they haven't seen the children all year. And that they would be babysitting on Christmas Day, as both she and her husband were working. At this juncture, something amazing happened. Nancy said to her brother, Let's tell Julie what we've done. And they both then took great pains to tell me that they had written to Santa and asked him if he wouldn't mind delivering their presents on Boxing Day this year, as Mummy and Daddy were key workers and were both on duty, and how it would be such a shame for them to miss him coming down the chimney as they had worked so hard all year. They felt that his brief visit would be okay, as he would not be stopping or meeting anyone, and besides, he would be wearing a mask anyway. At first, I was a little taken aback. 
And then I told them that I thought their rear request was a very sensible one and that I'd heard that Santa was very appreciative for all key workers and I was sure that he would do his best. And they skipped off down the drive, happy, contented, and their innocence to me brought home the true Christmas message of love, especially for their parents. Another piece from Julie, and indeed all the ladies, a bit later. But back to Andrew now, who brought the mare into the studio, which we had not used since March, but managed to safely socially distance for our traditional yearly chat. Is His Worship the Mayor, Councillor Michael Geel. Good afternoon, Mr Mayor, and thank you for joining us here at Grapevine. Yes, yeah, a pleasure. Good afternoon. Can I start by uh, talking to you about what must have been a very challenging year for yourself and the borough, especially as you weren't expecting to be in this position again this year? <laughs> no, I, I, I have to say it was a, as far as thing from my mind. Um, I thought it'd be all over in May, but obviously... Because of COVID-19, it, uh, the council didn't have an annual election, which was an instruction from the government, so they asked me to stay on for another year. I haven't done very much, I have to say, because of COVID-19. Of course, yes, with so, so many restrictions. But we've had a, um, some good news, I suppose, in a way. One of the news items we read out today is the potential very huge investment in the town um, with the with the purchase, hopeful purchase of Palmers, etc., etc., and the large scale investment in the town, and I suppose with the the new marina centre now coming out of the ground and the growing popularity of the staycation holiday, plus the offshore en energy industry, things are looking cautiously optimistic for the town. Would you feel? I always keep my fingers crossed when I talk about the future. Of course, I've got a little saying that always goes. There's not much you can do about the future. There's little you can do about the past and you have to live for today. But there are a lot of good things coming up. There is, as you said, the Marina Centre. There is the new bridge, which will start yes. yeah, in January. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Palmers as well. And also the, uh, the Iron Duke. Yes, has been, yes uh, we've covered done. that as well yeah. today. So all of a sudden, a lot of a lot of uh, projects seem to be coming together at one yeah. go. So that's uh, hopefully given us a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, well, I'd like to see the A47 jewelled, but that that probably, as long as I've been a counter, which is over 30 years, you know, it's I, never I happened. I think Graham might be able to tell us that was probably a news item on our first programme 40 years ago, wasn't it, Graham? And I think we're probably still waiting for it. Yeah. But... Cautious optimism, anyway. Yes. Um, now, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have just noticed that uh, that's not a local accent. No. So how did a northeastern lad end up here on the on the jewel of the Norfolk coast? Well, this is God's country, this is. Really? And, and I think God lives in Great Yarmouth and just pops out to help people occasionally. That, that's a lovely sentiment. Uh-huh. Um, uh, my dad was actually born in Cobham. Right. And he was a seaman, or yeah. a fisherman when we had fish. Yes. Um, and he used to, well, the boats used to go up the, the coast and back down the coast. Yeah. Well, my mother was from North Shields. Yeah. Uh, they got married and came and lived in Great Yarmouth. Um, and mostly I remember that in 1953 there was a flood. Yep. And my mother said, uh, I lived in North Shields all my life and I never got my feet wet. I got them soaked to my knees here. I'm going home. And that's, that was, that's, it. that was it. 
Yeah. And the reason I came back was in September 1971, I had a stepsister that lived in Goldston. Um, Brenda Parment, that was her name. And uh, I rang her up and said, look, I'm, I'm going back to Newcastle because I'd had enough of living in London. I'm going back to Newcastle. Can I come for a couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. And I came for a couple of weeks in September 71, and I've never left. And it's, I have to say it's one of the best holidays I've ever had. I'm, yeah, I'm sure it is. You must uh-huh. have enjoyed it for there. Yes. So all those years. And it's a bit like this is your life at the moment. And uh-huh. 30 years in the fire service then. Oh, yes, more, I did. More public service for you. Uh-huh. Well, most of my key jobs have been public service. Indeed, yeah. I was a nursing assistant at St Nicholas's Hospital for a few years. Right. Then I joined the fire service for yeah. 30 years. And I've been a councillor since 86. So most of the things I've done for are for have been in, public in, in minded. Public service, yes. And at the moment now, I'm the project manager for a small charity in Great Yarmouth called First Move Furnish Aid. All oh, right. So you're still, yeah, still very much doing, doing your piece. That's yes. Very noble. So 30 years in the fire service, um, that must have brought you many experiences, good and bad. Oh, yeah, there's some good any, ones any and some Any particularly stand out? The one I always think about is we went to rescue this cat in Goldson High Street up near the St Mary's Church, mm-hmm. and it was on one of the bay windows at the top. Um, and we put the ladder up, and cats are very, very, you know. So I went up, um, and I put my hand and grabbed it by a scruff of the neck. And as I was lifting it up, it suddenly put all clothes out and grabbed hold of my, <laughs> my jacket. Yeah. So down I went, and when I got to the bottom, it leapt off and ran out into the road, never to no. be seen again. Oh, dear me. Yeah. That is a classic farming's tale, isn't uh-huh. it? Classic farming's tale. So returning now to this year, um, and you must be very proud of the work the borough has done to keep its residents and, and our visitors um, as safe as possible, yeah? Yeah, I am absolutely proud, and every person in Great Yarmouth should be proud of what the council workers from top to the bottom have done to help people in these very, very hard times. Because I'm, I'm fairly lucky. I live in a house and I've got a garden, so I can wander in and out. Some people who live in flats have been stuck in flats yeah. for months and months, and it's absolutely awful. But I am very proud of the staff. And there's been a lot of unsung uh, heroes behind yes, the scenes, there has, I'm sure. Yes. sure and the know. volunteers that have come along and helped. Yeah. You well, know. Hopefully now we've got light at the end of the tunnel with the, with the vaccines. Yes. Uh-huh. And we mustn't miss out the emergency service. You know, they've done an excellent job as well. Yeah. The James Padgett and all the ambulance people, the fire brigade, the police... And everyone. Yeah, and a lot of this has gone unnoticed, I feel, don't yes. you? I think people don't actually notice something till they actually have it themselves. Yeah. So, you know, it, I don't think it's a time when people are ignoring it. They know it's happening. It's just sometimes they don't, if it doesn't happen to them, they're, yeah, they're not aware of it. They're not aware of it. No. So, to end on a happy note, then, a Christmas message for the residents of Yarmouth? What would well, you like to wish them? I think what I would like to say is try and do what you've been asked to over Christmas. Try and keep safe, be reasonable, because what I would like is everybody to be here next year at Christmas rather than take the chance, you know, and save it. And finally, I'd like to say I wish you all a very Merry Christmas 
and a happy new year. And if you drink half as much as I do on the day, you'll be reasonably pickled. <laughs> Michael Jill, Mayor of Great Yarmouth, thank you very much and a happy Christmas to you too. Cheers, thank you very much. Thank you. Many thanks to His Worship the Mayor and to Andrew. Let's have some more Christmas quickies from Jackie. This one is a little poem called A Chubby Snowman. A chubby snowman had a carrot nose, along came a bunny, and what do you suppose? That hungry little bunny, looking for some lunch, grabbed that snowman's nose with a nibble-nibble crunch. And my last one is a poem to you all to wish you a lovely Christmas and I really hope and pray that things do improve for us all in 2021 and grapevine readers can get back to what they enjoy the most. But in the meantime, here's a poem called Merry Christmas. Carols in the distance, laughter everywhere, I can smell Christmas floating in the air. Candy canes and bonbons, angels top the tree. There's presents over yonder, one for you and me. Tinsel wrapping round and round, candles light the night, making Santa's journey sparkly and bright. A very Merry Christmas to your family, my friend. May your new year bring happiness and the joyful times not end. Happy Christmas, everybody. Well, Jackie recorded several pieces for us, not all of which we have time for on this edition, but whilst the next full version of Grapevine is, as I've said, on the 8th of January, we will be doing short news updates on Thursday next week, that's Christmas Eve, and also the following week on New Year's Eve. So we'll bring the others to you then. Here's Julie with an alternate version of the Christmas story. Hello, it's Julie here again. This is uh, an alternative story about the nativity. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm an ordinary little lamb living with my mother, family and friends in a flock just outside Bethlehem. Our shepherds, John and David, are very dedicated in their care for us. This evening, as usual, we are all gathered around them on the hillside whilst they play pretty tunes on their pipes, but still watching out for predators. It is a beautiful, tranquil night, sharp temperature, clear sky, with just a gentle breeze. Suddenly, gosh, what is it? The air has gone so still, and the sky, wow! Quickly, Huggle, have you ever seen such brightness? Throughout the flock is a terrific sense of danger. Then, as if by magic, out of the heavens appears a figure dressed totally in white with wings and a halo. Listen, everyone, what is this thing saying? Calmed by this being and no longer frightened, we try to understand but as simple creatures find it very difficult. The vision disappears as miraculously 
as it has appeared. John and David are trying to explain everything to us. Apparently, it was an angel proclaiming the birth of a very special baby boy in Bethlehem. His parents, Mary and Joseph, have named him Jesus, although he's actually the son of God, and the being had urged both of them to visit immediately. As sheep, it is almost impossible to really appreciate the importance of these things. Indeed, how could he be the son of God if his mum and dad were called Mary and Joseph? We just couldn't understand that. Completely out of character, however, John picks up my mother and David myself, giving the remaining flock assurance safety would surround them, no harm would befall, and that they would return as soon as possible. With that, we leave the remainder behind to fend for themselves. I snuggled into David's warm clothing as we hurried down into the town, which of course Mum and I had never previously seen. During near, we met three very grand wise men riding camels. They have had a similar experience with the promise of meeting a king, journeying many miles led to the area by an extremely bright star shining in the east. We join them, still following this amazing spectacle until it stopped. Directly beneath the star is a humble stable. The humans discuss whether or not this is the place. Surely someone as regal should have a far more fitting abode for his station, rather than this smelly, albeit dry, compromise. Stepping inside, however, Mum and I realise that this little baby is indeed very special. He lies in a manger on a cosy bed of hay, wrapped in torn strips of cloth. Cattle from stalls and a seemingly very tired donkey surround the scene, bringing their body warmth to the family. Proud parents introduce themselves, welcoming all with open arms, lifting Jesus from his modest cradle to show us properly. An aura of unexplained light envelops this beautiful child. The wise men, all kings themselves, bow down in humility before leaving wonderful presents of gold, frankincense and myrrh. John and David cuddle us closely and kneeling whisper in our ears that they are offering us to this little boy. As we nestle under the manger, Mum and I are aware that we have been honoured as a gift to the Son of God. Somehow, deep down, we know that this little chap will make history and his birthday will be a happy time of loving and giving. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, I wrote that several years ago now and I'd like to take this opportunity to wish each and every one of you a very happy, peaceful and healthy Christmas. And I look forward to talking to you again in 2021. Golly, sounds strange, doesn't it? Anyway, goodbye for now. God's blessings on you all. Margaret returns now 
with a Christmas letter. And now, as they say, for something completely different. Um, this is called Christmas Thank Yous, and it's by Mick Gower. Dear Auntie, Oh, what a nice jumper. I've always adored powder blue, and fancy you thinking of orange and pink for the stripes. How clever of you. Dear Uncle, the soap is terrific, so useful, and such a kind thought. And how did you guess that I just used the last of the soap that last Christmas brought? Dear Gran, many thanks for the hankies. Now I really can't wait for the flu, and the daisers embroidered in red round the M for Michael. How thoughtful of you. Dear Cousin, what socks? And the same sort you wear. So you must be the last word in style. And I'm certain you're right that the luminous green will make me stand out a mile. Dear Sister, I quite understand your concern. It's a risk sending jam in the post. But I think I've pulled out all the big bits of glass. So that won't taste too sharp spread on toast. Dear Grandad, don't fret, I'm delighted. So don't think your gift will offend. I'm not all hurt. That you gave up this year and just sent me a fiver to spend. Thank you, Grandad. And so, bless you all. Thank you for listening. And do stay safe. Thanks, Margaret. OK, well, as I mentioned earlier, this week's recording completes Grapevine's 40th year of operation. After much planning, January the 8th, 1980, saw Volume 1, Number 1, delivered to Royal Mail to hit the doormats the next day. The yellow envelopes were the same, but instead of a USB stick, the familiar plastic and Velcro creation contained a cassette with 30 minutes of news on each side. There are sadly very few of the original members still with us, but Desney took the opportunity to talk to Rex Stedman, our first chairman, followed closely by Andrew giving me a grilling as the one who presented that first edition, never dreaming that the problems of Covid would have me repeating the performance 40 years later. I was, of course, very young at the time, and if you believe that, you'll believe anything. Right, so here we have Rex, and I'm going to ask him about how Grapevine began. 16th of January 1981, Rex, it didn't just happen on that day, did it? What happened before that? Well, no, it didn't happen on that day at all. That was really the end of the deliberations, really. I understand, and I wasn't in the Yarmouth Rotary in those days, but I understand that it was a project of the Great Yarmouth Rotary Club. Uh, and they became aware that talking newspapers were being set up in various parts of the country, and they thought that possibly Great Yarmouth it, itself should have a talking newspaper. And I understand that they set up a steering committee, and that the steering committee uh, eventually decided to have a talking newspaper. The steering committee w consisted of uh, fairly well-known figures in those days, and people fairly well-known in Rotary, uh, and eventually me as well, but I wasn't quite so well known, but I was the local librarian, and I rather feel that I was really asked to be part of the committee, 
because of my interest in, in books. I know it's not talking books or talking newspapers. But I think that was the main reason that they asked me, and not because I had any special qualities. And um, so that, that was the, uh, the moment that they brought me in as a librarian of, um, of the town. And then eventually I, be, I became chairman. And um, that was the, as far as I was concerned, that was the very beginnings of Grapevine. And we, we formed a, a main committee then. And um, there were one or two people on that main committee that, that are still around, like Graham and um, Alan Morris, for example, and myself. And um, it was from there that we started to, um, to, to consider the production of a talking newspaper. We, uh, we had one or two earlier meetings, and one of the, um, we, we got the Lord Mayor, I think it was, or possibly past Lord Mayor of Norwich, who was a chairman of the Norwich talking newspaper to come along and um, to, to, to talk to, to the meeting to tell them what was required. And he said, pointing at Frank Snowsell, who was uh, there at the time, I think he would make a good chairman, he said, but the meeting didn't agree. Frank didn't get the job, and I did. But <laughs> Frank became chairman after me in the end. But, uh, uh, and that was the beginning. And, and we began, as you say, in January. And we, we even at the very beginning, we had, must have been, seven, I think, about 70 people involved um, and uh, 17 listeners. And I think up to about 80 helpers at one time. It was the sort of thing that people wanted to help with. It was uh, something new and uh, something that people wanted to get involved with. And you've got a lot of, uh, for example, teachers and this sort of thing who, who were involved in it. It was a tremendously uh, well worthwhile thing and it was very successful. And it was a very, very happy ship, to use a, a, an expression like that. And we were very happy and uh, great find met every Friday night and it has done practically throughout this whole 40-year career. Up until now? Up until now, when we've had this this problem, yes. Yes. So, um, had it not been for that, we could more or less have said that it met every Friday night. For 40 yes. years, yes. Amazing, isn't it? So, uh, what sort of things did you have to put in place before you could start all this? I mean, you had to get funds, premises, equipment, people? Yeah, well, we, we were lucky, Desney, because um, there was somebody that became involved with Grapevine by the name of Graham Gooder. <laughs> you may have heard I've of. heard of him, yes, yes. <laughs> Who, 40 years on, is still with us. Um, um, and he's still running the show in many respects because he's now a technical officer and always has been. And he's um, certainly uh, running this show with our uh, home broadcasts. Well, well, yes, indeed, he is. Yes, he's doing very well. So we, we were so pleased about that. But as it happened, and coincidentally, really, Graham at that time was um, chairman of Hospital Radio Year, who had premises or a studio at Northgate Hospital. And uh, when he heard about what we had to do, he said, well, that's all right, I can help. You can use Hospital Radio Year. You don't have to buy your own premises. You can use all its recording equipment. And um, you, can, you can meet there on Friday nights, um, which is what we did at the very beginning. We, we hadn't got any money, but we didn't really need very much money. That was a uh, real stroke of luck then, wasn't it? That was a real stroke of luck, yes. But um, over the period of time, um, we've never really uh, looked for any money. We've always relied on donations. 
we have been very lucky, haven't we? For a long time, though, we didn't actually have to pay any rent or anything like that, did we? So, uh, well, no, it was all free, yeah, but we didn't pay anything. Um, and everything was compliments, if you like, of the hospital authority and the many things that normally people would have to pay for. We just got it free because we were deemed, I think, to be part of um, Hospital Radio Year. And uh, I think it was always felt that Hospital Radio Year and Grapevine should go hand in hand together, really, which it did for many, many years. It was only when we got more self-sufficient or, or enough to keep ourselves going uh, that we suddenly decided that we started to buy all our own equipment and in the end had our own premises. Yes, that's right. Still at Northgate though, wasn't it? So. It was at Northgate at the time, yes. We had um, originally at Northgate, we used the uh, Graham Studio, but we also needed somewhere, this is Northgate still, mm -hmm. we also needed somewhere where we could prepare. Yes. Get our envelopes and things ready, and yeah. we could check afterwards. And we used the back of their social club, if I remember rightly, which uh, you could just walk just across a few yards from Graham Studio to the social club. So we used that, um, and uh, eventually we we got our own premises, which was a porter cabin, which was our own, which we got permission to site in the hospital grounds, which was the other side of the road from hospital radio, yeah. So we used to do all our preparatory work, etc., and all our work afterwards in the porter cabin and just walk across the road to the studio. So that was convenient as well. Yes, we've always been very lucky there, yeah. We yes, did we, we did eventually have to buy our own equipment, or rather we didn't perhaps have to, but we decided it was better we had a legacy, didn't we? Um, yes, we did have a legacy um, of... Uh, now you've got me on the hop, I think it was £14,000, um, which was a, quite a lot of money, but the £14,000 was enough to sort of get us going really with our own premises and with equipment and that sort of thing. And um, that, that was a, a little lady in, uh, I think it was West Road Caster, who'd been having grapevine ever since it began, and she left us what was then, as still is, a lot of money. Yes, another stroke of luck. We have had a lot of luck in our time, haven't we? Yes, we have, yes. And it's, it's been very lucky indeed. I've, another thing that we've been involved with, or I've been involved with, is liaison friendship, if you like, with other talking newspapers. Um, and uh, I think we're, we're very much one of the senior talking newspapers. The first one was Norwich. And um, I, I, I found out how difficult some of them have have found it to to get going and to and to find the money to get going and they meet in people's front rooms their front bedrooms back bedrooms all sorts of things whereas we have always had our own studios we've always been self-sufficient and um, we, we've been very lucky um, because of cooperation with other people but um, there we are well we started with uh, cassettes in those days and here we are huh. I'm in my own front room at my dining table, just recording. Yes. <laughs> well, that's right, yes. Yeah. We've, we've gone right through to having our own premises, and now suddenly you're, we're back again, or you are, um, doing the recording in, in your own front room, yeah. Very strange. Well, let's hope that 2021 will be a bit better for us, and after our yeah. birthday, at some stage during that year, 
maybe we'll be able to all get together again and... Uh, yes, that would be nice, Desi, wouldn't it? It yes. would, yeah. Yes, yes, so we'll miss our lunch this year to celebrate our 40th, but I know everyone will be thinking of us on our yes. 40th birthday. That's right. Finally, if I may, really, we always had a, an annual quiz with um, two of the other talking newspapers. Yes, that's and right. I have told them that we can't do it this year. Mm. And they have said, well, perhaps we can all get together and have one big celebration when it's all over. That's right, uh, yes. Perhaps a barbecue or something. Well, I think there'll be a lot of celebrating then. There will be, and I, I am very happy with the way that we've had cooperation from everybody, and um, we are not just a single talking newspaper, but we are one of many, but very important, I think. Well, thanks very much, Rex, for giving us your memories. That's been really interesting for us. Thank All you. Right. And now it's time to welcome Graham Gooder, our technical officer for Grapevine. As we approach the 40th anniversary of Grapevine, can you tell us, without hesitation, repetition or deviation, how you became involved? Read it in the Mercury, to be perfectly honest. Um, I was uh, chairman of Hospital Radio Year at the time, and uh, um, the station had been going for about three years at a studio on Northgate. And in the first instance, should I say, it actually just interested me to see what, uh -huh. they, were, what they were up to. So uh, I went along to the public meeting they held. And it all went from there? Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the original recordings, I, I gather, they were sent out on cassettes. Now, that must have been very, very labour-intensive and obviously with little chance to correct any mistakes. Well, that's it. You know, when we first started, um, we didn't record on anywhere that could be edited. We were literally recording in real time onto a two-sided C30 cassette. <laughs> and so if anything did go wrong, we had to use judiciously the stop and start on the machine if it was dramatic to try and uh, get over it so there would have been some funny noises on some of those I, I think those of us who are an age that used to record um, Top of the Pops on a Sunday night to make up our own uh, hits on the cassettes will remember that kind of uh, technology yeah that's right I mean it, it was uh, suitable for what we were doing but could be better yeah. <laughs> I just used to find it on the bottom of my report what was the next technological advance then, Graham? We went with cassette for quite a large number of years and we didn't change over. We went straight to USB sticks in actual fact. We didn't have any intermediate. We did think about using CDs and various other bits and pieces but uh, held off and, yeah, we went straight to USB sticks so at the a judicious up, time. The step up to USB and the equipment needed, that require a lot of investment at the time? It was the other way round, really. Um, the problem was with cassette that to actually duplicate them, the duplicators that we had, the initial ones, you put um, the master cassette in one side, having copied it because we actually had two sets of the, the copiers, and that then copied onto, I think it was three cassettes. So each cassette copied at twice speed, mm -hmm. so it went faster, yep. so it didn't take you forever. But uh, so every, every cassette had to be put into its own little pouch, and we had two sets of three recording at a time. And at that time, how many cassettes a week roughly were being sent out? Well, it went very quickly up to about 180. Really? In fact, I think even maybe some more than that. You know, it's uh, time has obscured the memory, yeah, I'm course, afraid. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. Now, 
Grapevine has been, how can I say, on the road in the last few years and as much as locations have been moved. Uh, what was that down to, Graham? Well, we initially started off doing the recording itself in the studios at Hospital Radio, yeah. And then we had um, the offer of a porter cabin to enable us to do the admin side of it, the right. packing up and the unpacking and all that sort of thing of the cassettes. Dead opposite. So it was basically, you know, we were in, Radio Air was a porter cabin on one side of a fairly narrow road in, mm -hmm. within the hospital yeah. and Grapevine was dumped down opposite, which, which was quite good. And then after an amount of time, again, I, I honestly can't remember the exact number of years, mm -hmm. but we were very lucky recipients of... Rex said about £14,000 legacy oh, right. from someone. Mm. So at that time, um, Radio Year was expanding and wanting to broadcast on Friday evening, so, which was our normal recording mm -hmm. evening. So we, um, we decided to set up a, an independent studio within that porter cabin, of course, yeah. um, which we did. In fact, most of the uh, infrastructure, such as this desk we're sitting at now, was actually purchased at that time from that legacy which was quite good. Unfortunately, as many people will know, that whole site now has been basically redeveloped. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, a year where we had to find somewhere else to go. Initially, they put us in some doctor's accommodation that wasn't being used, and we used that as a studio. That was very, very tight. This unit that we're sitting at, which is, is quite big in actual fact. It's about, well, very roughly eight foot square. Mm -hmm. And it was in a room about 10 foot square. <laughs> cosy. So it was cosy. So we wanted to get out of there. And uh, at the time, luckily, um, Mark Duffield of Aldred's offered to let us have the top floor of a property he got on Regent Street. It used to be Bowers and Bar, uh, if yeah, people sure can people remember that. that is, yeah. Yeah. The problem with it was um, it was quite good, the actual studio we set up in there, but it was up effectively six flights of stairs. Well, you know, uh, many of our members are not exactly spring chickens and it did pose serious problems to some. So I posited this um, as a problem at Mark and he then kindly said, well, you can have some space I've got at the back of the... Uh, main office on Hall Quay mm -hmm. um, on the ground floor, which is indeed where we're recording this at the moment. But again, it's unfortunate because, sadly for us, but um, I suppose not so sadly for Aldred's, they are going to require the space back sometime during the next few months. Right. So we're going to be on the move again. Um, whilst this hasn't been a pressure on us as we're recording at the moment, um, in the longer term, then course, obviously we've got yes, to find somewhere. Yeah, something so, we're going to look to. So, but yeah, to so so that that news about Palmer's being bought by the borough council has, has, yes. has, yes, has raised my hopes. To be perfectly honest, I hope that uh, there'll be maybe a, a useful little space in there for. A, we like to think very, very useful and very well enjoyed service. And even if it's on the top floor, they've got a lift. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, since March, with the with the lockdown, etc., we've we've been providing our, our, we're proud to say, unbroken record of consecutive shows by recordings made on the hoof, if you will, um, by readers and guests, many in our own homes. Many listeners may wonder before this year um, how it all worked before COVID. 
when we were recording here in the studio on a regular basis. And we had quite a, a, a cast of thousands, really. As the listeners will know, there were uh, four readers each week That's right. and a presenter. On top of that, there were others that came in and did various other spot and or um, pieces to add to the actual recording. There were two engineers who sit in a little room with a window opposite where I'm sitting at the moment, and they controlled the recording of the actual programme, which these days goes on the computer. So if we make a mistake, we can edit it out, you know, with yeah. any great amount of problem. As we frequently do. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Then to the side, we've got another room, which is the admin room, which is where they unpack the little yellow envelopes and pack the little yellow envelopes. That's it. I think many people would be surprised in the amount of uh, intensity of labour that goes in at six o'clock on a Friday night when we're normally recording to get these out to the post. That's right. To your doorsteps for Saturday. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's generally at least two, if not three people in admin. So that's what we've got. So one, two, three, four, five... Six, seven, eight, nine. So there's at least ten people. And, of course, the editorial staff during the day who, and the who choose the news. And the editors, yes, and they, they generally these days work from home because they find it more convenient rather mm. than coming into the studio. But then one of the editors drops the actual physically hard-copy news down to us, basically bits snipped out of the mercury, as it has been, and talking, yeah, sort of uh, between ten and fifteen. Yeah. On a weekly basis. On a weekly basis, that's right. So multiply that by four because we generally have a four-week rotor mm. and that's several. That's several people. 60 in actual in, in, yeah. in, in, in real money, that is 60. That's yes. 60, yeah, yeah. But of course it's a lot different at the moment. Yes, it is. And it's been an experience, but uh, we're, we're proud that we've been able to keep going and hopefully providing you with, all, with some good listening. Now, one constant throughout the years in Grapevine has been the theme. How did this theme come about, Graham, this theme tune we have? Well, in actual fact, it has changed. I'm going to uh, put onto the tape this week, possibly, all of side one of that very first edition of Great Excellent. And when we first started, we had a, um, a chap called Pierce, Tom Pierce, his name was, his daughter played the organ. Um, I think she was a young lady of somewhere between sort of 12 and 15, I can't remember exactly now. She's probably drawing a pension by now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, and she said that she composed a theme tune for us, which she did. And, I mean, the tune itself was, you know, it wouldn't win any... Um, any Eurovision. Any Eurovision Song Contest, but, you know, it was our, our theme and that was it. Sadly, the recording was awful oh. and it was so over-recorded that um, I, think it, I think it lasted for about a year and a half to two years. Right. And then I said, look, you know, this just sounds... It, it was literally horrible sounding. Right. The actual audio was mm -hmm. very distorted and really disgusting, you know. We did get another recording done of it, but that wasn't really very much better. It was somebody who thought they knew better and, and you know, went off at a tangent. It ended up with some sort of jazzy thing that... Right didn't really uh, didn't really fit the bill well it didn't really fit the music let alone <laughs> the bill. Uh, so over the years we've we've had two or three um i know we had um herb albert's version of casino royale theme um for some time the one we've got at the moment is called a song for satch and it's um burke hamford right 
it was a tune I hadn't heard before in spite of having had Burke Comfort records when, in the 70s when everyone mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. It seemed to fit what we needed to do and so we, uh, we've been using that now I suppose two or three years, three or four years. I honestly can't remember. Well, yeah, it's hopefully it's something people look forward to hearing every week anyway when we send it out. Mm. So you've told us about the uh, relocation, um, the physical side of it, Graham. What plans for the future of the programme uh, for us to carry on in the same format? It's a difficult one. I mean, we have found prior to lockdown, we were finding it difficult to get the yellow envelopes packed ready and and we have to physically take them down to the sorting office on North Quay which whilst it's not far away from here we're in the centre of Hall Quay if we have a problem it's a problem yeah of course and so we're relying on the mercury which didn't come out till Friday which had to be edited during the course of the day we started at four o'clock in actual fact but that still only gave us two hours before we had to make the yellow envelopes hit the post office. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot easier now. We don't have that pressure, mainly because we're just sending um, a computer file over to uh, Stephen McGarry, um, our our web expert, who uploads it each week, which we have been doing anyway, in addition to the yellow envelopes for a long while. But we don't have the pressure because we're using uh, the Mercury online. That's right. And so we can start from whenever there's a story. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, this week, there was only one story until the middle of today. Correct. (laughs) But uh, this being Thursday when we we were actually recording it because of the uh, large amount of stuff going on the tape this week. Tape. You can't get away from those tapes, No, you you? can't. You can't stop saying that, unfortunately. (laughs) So, you know, we've got that option that we can actually edit electronically and print out the stories specifically during the course of the week. Right. Which actually brings forward the premise that we could record on a Thursday because the Mercury's put to bed by somewhere about, um, I would guess, latest now, really, which is the middle of the afternoon on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're printed miles away. I can't remember where now, but uh, certainly not in Norwich. Incidentally, one piece of information that that may have got lost in the mist of time is the week that Grapevine started was the week that the Murphy went tabloid from Broadsheet. Oh, Broadsheet days. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, so uh, we, we re-recorded the first tabloid, Yarmouth Mercury. Crikey, that's, a, that's a format, yeah. yeah. Um, Graham, thank you very, very much, and, and not just for today, and I say this on behalf of our many readers, uh, our admin staff and the tech staff, and also people listening over the 40 years, thank you for making so much of this possible, and we wish you a very happy Christmas. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, I look forward to uh, doing a few more, but I hope I can... Retire backwards as I did originally. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Once we, once we get another studio. Thanks very much. Well, I hope that those two pieces gave you some insight into 40 years of grapevine. If you're interested, the first side of the cassette recording will be after our goodbyes. We do, however, have to leave the last word to Dusty. It's time now to wish you all a very happy 
and blessed Christmas from from all of us, I think, at Grapevine. I'm sure everybody will join me in saying that we hope that although this is a difficult time for so many of us and a sad time, the true joy of Christmas is its simplicity uh, and its peace that it can bring and contentment if we can just settle down to that. So we leave you with a little blessing. May the simplicity of the shepherds, the perseverance of the wise men, the joy of the angels, the love of the Christ child, fill the hearts and homes of all of you and those you love at this holy season and throughout the year to come. Keep safe and God bless you all from all of us. Well, that's all we have for you for this edition of Grapevine. Grapevine, volume 40, number 51, is copyright 2020 of the Great Jonathan District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Jonathan District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. We will have short news updates for you on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve with our next full version on Friday the 8th of January 2021. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, have a very Merry Christmas and a happy and healthy New Year and we leave you with that recording from 40 years ago. Grapevine, Volume 1, Number 1. from the Great Yarmouthan District Talking Newspaper Association for the Blind. Welcome to this, the first of our weekly talking newspapers, Grapevine. Yes, every week from now on you'll be receiving through your letterbox a cassette like this, which we hope you'll look forward to and enjoy. To tell you more about this, here is our chairman, Mr Rex Steadman. Hello. I really am very pleased to be talking to you today. After many months of work, we are now able to present our first issue of Grapevine. This would not have been possible without the help of a large number of people and organisations. We have an army of volunteers, and financial assistance has been received from so many different sources. Since last August, we have raised thousands of pounds to buy high-speed copiers, erasers, cassette recorders, cassettes and other items of equipment. In addition, we have been lucky enough to secure the full facilities of Hospital Radio Year so that we can use all their recording equipment without having to buy it ourselves. We are very grateful to all those who have helped for enabling us to bring Grapevine into your homes. Don't forget, Grapevine is your own personal newspaper and we hope you get as much pleasure from listening to it as we do from preparing it. Best wishes from all of us at Grapevine.
Mr Rex Dedman, Chairman of Grapevine, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. What we intend to do, and so now I think it's time to start doing it. Straight away I'll tell you that my name is Graham, your link man for this week, and in at the deep end come Margaret and Geoffrey with the first part of the news. Hi there, this is Jeff. Yarmouth Mercury hits the headlines this week with the first issue in a completely new format. After over a hundred years in the big broadsheet form, the Mercury has followed the national trend and has changed to the easy-to-handle tabloid size. The paper now has many more pages, 52 in its first edition, but readers should find it much easier to read once they get used to it. Many new features are included and others are planned. One early favourable reaction comes in the letter columns this week in the following letter from Mrs K. Dybel. May I wish you all the very best of luck with your new Mercury. As you know, this is the year of the disabled. But I wonder if you realise how much you are contributing to this year by altering the size of the Mercury. My husband always looks forward to reading the Mercury from the front page right through. As he spends his days in a wheelchair because he has severe rheumatoid arthritis, his joints are terribly painful. He has great difficulty in stretching his arms to open the paper. And now, how lovely! He'll be able to look forward even more to reading the Mercury because he knows it will be easier to handle. So good luck to you all in 1981 with great thanks. Hello there. Our next piece of news, Britain's Rebel Olympic gold medal winners may be invited to open the new Yarmouth Marine Leisure Centre instead of the Queen. Buckingham Palace has yet to reply to last year's invitation for the Queen to unveil the multi-million pound prestige complex and efforts are being made to get a quick yes or no from the Palace. But in a meeting behind locked doors, members of the Borough Council's controlling Labour group voiced support for the idea of bringing in five victorious athletes to perform the opening ceremony. The five triumphant Moscow Olympians, Daley Thompson, Steve Overt, Sebastian Coe, Duncan Goodhue and Alan Wells were among the party of sportsmen and women and the centre of the controversy over Britain sending an Olympic deputation to the Games. Dormit Timber Industries, a Sarancester-based timber company which has just landed a £5 million export order, is to take over a large part of the former Horsley Smith land at Southtown. The firm will be expecting its first ships early next month and have a sawmill in operation by June. It will mean 50 new jobs for the town, as well as bringing the dormant key and storage sheds back into action. Dormit have been searching the east coast for a suitable base which would put them near to their continental export market and Thetford Forest from which they will be getting much of their timber. They found them at Yarmouth. By next year, the firm reckons to be shifting around 100,000 tonnes of timber products through its Yarmouth base. A boy of 16 was dragged from icy seas off Gorston this week after falling from a seawall ledge. Towering waves had knocked him repeatedly against the concrete wall. Miraculously uninjured by his ordeal, he said, I thought I'd had it. Andrew Casey of Pound Lane Gorston had been walking with two friends along the seawall on Lower Marine Parade Gorston. They jumped onto a ledge halfway down and started walking on that. Then one of them, Michael Body, slipped on the wet surface. 19-year-old Michael of Deborah Road, Galston, managed to drag himself out, but Andrew was struggling. Swimming desperately, he tried to remove some of his clothing to keep himself afloat. 
A couple, Ronald and Frieda Hollis of Holloway Gorston, ran to the sea wall with a rope, and Andrew's second friend, Stuart Botwright, 19, jumped down onto the ledge with it. Then Tony Leggett, a part-time barman at the nearby Lynx Hotel, jumped onto the ledge where Stuart was still hanging onto Andrew with the rope. Drenched themselves by the giant waves, together they finally managed to haul him out. A plan to give Yarmouth a new community centre has been approved by councillors this week. They agreed to a proposal to convert the drill hall in Artillery Square, but the plan has raised protests from local people. They are afraid it would bring noise and disturbance, the Barrack Planning Committee was told. The local publicans' organisation has also objected. The conversion will be done by unemployed young people, said Chief Planning Officer Mr Michael Dowling. At Aldenborough Primary School, nearly half the school's population of around 550 5 to 10 year olds stay for dinner. But with a fall in the number of school meals in various areas, an all out effort has been launched to keep the numbers from falling, despite the recent increase in school meal charges. At Alton Broad, County Council and local officials, backed by Headmaster Mr Ian Crow and the staff, hope to boost the numbers by introducing mealtime pop. The music comes from a school weekly top ten, with pop music taped from records chosen by the pupils. The music is to be played at mealtimes, providing what Mr Crow described as a restaurant and social atmosphere during school meals. Two brothers were this week charged with murdering former Galston resident Harold Witch in Cumbria on Friday. Before a special magistrate's court at Carlisle were Raymond George Croxford of Dixon Place St Anne's Hill, Carlisle and David Michael Croxford of Bedford Hill, Balham in London. They were remanded in custody for a week. There was no application for bail. A mother and toddler swimming session is to be introduced at the Phoenix Pool Bradville by popular request. The Publicity and Entertainments Committee agreed to set aside little-used Saturday morning session between 10am and 12 noon for mothers and toddlers. Committee Vice-Chairman Mr Tony Wright thought it might be better to amend it to parent and toddler in case dads wanted to take their youngsters for swimming lessons. He also suggested that the adults should pay an admission charge but all toddlers up to the age of five should be admitted free. Yarmouth Lions' free winner car site on the Golden Mile came under debate this week when a borough councillor suggested they should pay rent. While this move was defeated, the Lions could be asked for a balance sheet to show where the money goes. This will be decided by the full council when it meets next month. Lion member Mr Douglas Clark, chairman of their car competition committee, said they would be happy to let the council have a balance sheet. It shows that after expenses, all the proceeds go towards running the holiday home for the blind at Galston. The stall has been a seafront feature for over 15 summers, and each year the Lions ask permission from the council. The winner car stall was started purely to raise funds towards the running of the holiday home for the blind, which cost several thousand pounds. One of Yarmouth's oldest and most historic pubs, the Duke's Head on Hall Quay, is back in business. This former coaching inn dates back to the 15th century. It is rumoured that it inspired one of the locations mentioned in Charles Dickens' David Copperfield and, in an earlier reincarnation, was a guild hall. Now it's back in fine style as a popular town centre local, having been completely refurbished by Whitbread at a cost exceeding £60,000. 
An injured crewman was plucked from a of trawler in a blizzard off the Norfolk coast this week. A winchman from an RAF helicopter braved force nine gale winds to lift 21-year-old deckhand Stephen Jacobs from the tossing deck of the Boston Sea Fury. He was treated by a doctor as the Sea King rescue helicopter whisked him to Norwich. After spending some hours in hospital, he was allowed to go home. Mr Jacobs of Montgomery Avenue, Lowestoft, was working on the deck of the stern trawler when he was injured, but it is not known how the accident happened. The helicopter had to fly through thick snow and had trouble in finding the trawler in poor visibility 75 miles northeast of Yarmouth. Second pilot Flight Lieutenant Dave Carter said, Visibility was down to 200 yards, but we managed to find the trawler in between snow showers. Mr Peter Baker of Peter Avenue Acle has taken up a new appointment as Deputy Head of Raiden High School where the role is about 320. Mr Baker, aged 45, a native of Stoke-on-Trent, came to Norfolk in 1966 to join the staff of the then Caister Secondary School. It is now a comprehensive high school and he was Head of the Humanities Department when he obtained the Suffolk Post. Galston Swimming Pool's buffet is being let for a rent of £2,000 next summer. The offer from a Yarmouth hotelier has been accepted by the Publicity and Entertainments Committee. Antique furniture worth £1,300 was taken from a store at the Old Curiosity Shop at South Horsham at the weekend. The store was locked up on Friday afternoon and the burglary discovered on Sunday morning. Superintendent Geoffrey Neville said that a van must have been used to take away the stolen furniture, four Tippendale chairs with straight legs and intricate patterned backs, a bow-fronted mahogany chest and a walnut French cabinet with a marble top and four drawers. An oil painting of Swainsthorpe has won an international award for a Yarmouth artist, but the prize-winning picture is just over one inch square. Mr Cyril Turner of Stone Road Cobham specialises in miniature landscapes and still-life paintings. He entered seven pictures in an exhibition organised by the Miniature Arts Society of Florida. He was delighted to learn that the Swainthorpe view had beaten all others in its class. Mr Turner has been a full-time artist since he left the Merchant Navy in 1969. He has no problem selling his miniatures, which fetch up to £70 each. Thanks to Margaret and Jeff. They'll be back later on, as will Maisel and Peter, our other newsreaders this week. But right now, the first of another regular part of Grapevine with Richard Henwood. This week's sports report, here's Richard Henwood. Thanks, Graham. And Norwich crashed to what could prove to be a disastrous defeat away to fellow First Division strugglers Sunderland. Defensive blunders cost City dear as they were beaten 3 0. Facing a near gale force wind in the first half, City were always up against it, having difficulty even getting into the home side's half. Sunderland took advantage of the wind and led 2 0 at the break with goals from Rowell and Cummins. A second goal from Rowell completed a miserable day for City. 
In the Town and Country League, third place Gorston gained an important victory away to Ely, second in the league. It was a most impressive victory for despite leading just 1-0 at half time, the Greens eventually ran out 5-2 winners. Gorston's goals came from Woodcock 2, Morgan, Kirk and Woods. Last off, just behind the Greens in the table, gained a home victory for the second successive week. This time the team to suffer were Haverhill, who had defeated 2-0. Andy Lockhead scored both goals in the first half when last off were playing against a strong wind. Yarmouth were the region's only town and country league team to be beaten yesterday. They were defeated 3-2 at Saffron Walden. Richard Henwood there with this week's sports report. Sitting opposite me, waiting eagerly to read you more of this week's news, are Maisel and Peter. Hello there. At the Central Library in Yarmouth, the once fine coping stone from the door of the Howard Street Corn Exchange lies forlornly on the grass outside the library, rotting away. It is a relic of Howard Street as it was, and one of its more notable buildings which disappeared with the creation of Stonecutter's Way in early 1969 when it was demolished. The library, then controlled by Yarmouth Borough Council, promised it would be found a home. It is felt that the least that could happen is to mount the stone on a wall somewhere together with photographs and history about it. Hello. A motorcyclist and his pillion passenger were taken to hospital after a road accident at Caister. Their Honda 500 was in collision with a Hillman Avenger on Ormsby Road. Russell Brown of Snowdrop Cottage and his pillion passenger Nina Young of Marham Cottage, both of Old Chapel Road, Winterton, were taken to Yarmouth General Hospital. Miss Young was detained with a suspected fractured skull and was said to be comfortable. Mr Brown was treated for a fractured foot and later released. The driver of the Hillman Avenger, Mr P Partridge of Reynolds Avenue, Caister, was not hurt. Problem drinking is getting worse in Norfolk and it is giving health and social services a big headache. A report to Norfolk Area Health Authority says available figures for the problem drinkers may be just the tip of the iceberg. It calls for more help for drinkers and for prevention through education in schools, colleges and industry. The influx of problem drinkers is proving increasingly burdensome to bodies providing, for example, temporary night shelter for the homeless. Goldstone's Galio Manufacturing Company this week announced the completion of a major export contract and there's the prospect of even more lucrative overseas trade to come. Managing Director Mr James Cheeseman said that the firm, which specialises in manufacturing food processing machinery, was due to ship out a £25,000 consignment of equipment to Italy at the end of this week. Going comprehensive will signal the end of an era in Yarmouth. The town is one of the last places in the country which has, up until now, used a selection method to determine which school pupils attend from the age of 11. All that stops in July, in readiness for the reorganisation that will take place in September 1982. Out go the grammar schools and secondary modern schools. In come the new high schools. They will be at the existing Yarmouth, Galston, and Oriel Grammar 
and at the Claydon and Cliff Park schools. The high schools will be for the new sixth form. I'll read that again. The high schools will be for pupils aged 12 to 16. The new sixth form college at what is now Alderman Leach, not due to open until 1982. Where does that leave this year fifth formers who want to start A-level studies in the autumn? That's simple, says Area Education Officer Mr Len Ricketts. Those who want to continue at school can do just that. They will be perfectly welcome to stay on where they are for their lower sixth year, transferring to the sixth form college in 1982. Just five weeks after losing over £1,000 worth of goods in an overnight break-in, May's General Store in Blackfriars Road, Yarmouth, has been struck again. Burglars smashed a glass-fronted door and broke into the shop, leaving with over £800 worth of cigarettes, cigars and sweets. Mr Derek Mays, whose father owns the shop, said that no cash had taken this time because the tills had been cleared over the weekend. Hot school dinners at some of Yarmouth's primary schools could end in April if proposed education cuts get the go-ahead at the full Norfolk County Council meeting. In an effort to make savings, it is proposed that 428 Norfolk school kitchens should be shut down with the loss of 1,250 jobs. Schools preparing less than 50 meals a day, with a few exceptions, were the ones likely to be affected, said a spokesman from County Hall. He said there would be a packed lunches service for those children entitled to free school meals should the kitchens close. The Reverend Dermot Hetherington of the Ravingham Group was said today to be seriously ill but stable in a Rome hospital after suffering a stroke while on an earthquake relief mission. His colleague, the Reverend Ralph Taylor, who is staying with him in Rome, said he was being treated in one of Rome's top neurological hospitals. Mr Taylor, also a member of the Ravingham Group, was in a party of five local men taking two caravans from Loddon to Italian earthquake refugees. The illness occurred on the return journey. Table tennis fan Vaughan Temperton is limbering up for a sponsored sporting marathon. Vaughan, who lives at Wellesley Road, is aiming to set a new world table tennis playing record. But first he needs a partner and the offer of a hall and table to make the whole thing possible. Vaughan explained that he has only come to live in Yarmouth recently, but is still determined to turn his bid for the record books into reality as soon as possible. That will mean nearly four days of non-stop table tennis. Workers in Yarmouth are second to none, the Deputy Mayor, Mr John Clymer, remarked at a meeting of the Estates and Industrial Development Committee. His comments came as members discussed industrial activity in the town. Our labour relations are the best almost in England or even Europe, he said. But Mr Clymer added that there were factors which counterbalanced the good worker-employer situation. He claimed that Yarmouth had an enormous disadvantage in transporting goods to their destination. Thank you, Maisel and Peter, and we look forward to more news in a while. Well, each week we hope to bring you an interview or two with people who have made the news or people we think you would be interested to hear about. This week, as it's our first tape, we have someone without whose cooperation Grapevine would be very, very difficult to get to. Here's Daisy Cannell. My guest and I have been friends since we first met and worked together many years ago. 
Neither of us could have imagined that one day I would have been talking to her about her career. Looking into the background of the very important post she now occupies, I find that she is one of only two women in the country holding this appointment. It is also appropriate that she should be here today, helping to inaugurate Grapevine and appear as our first guest, because she now controls a local organisation which will distribute, free of charge, the talking newspaper Grapevine. So it, was, it is with particular pleasure that I welcome Miss Jackie Nichols, the first woman head postmaster of Great Yarmouth. First of all, Jackie, could you tell us, please, if the free delivery service which the post office provides for the talking newspaper is applicable to Yarmouth only? No. Articles for the blind, such as books, games and instructional material in Braille, can be sent free of postage to blind people anywhere. There are weight and size limits, and of course they are subject to examination in the post. Talking newspapers, however, are rather special because they are going to circulate to and fro on a weekly basis. This service does have to be specially agreed and arranged between the organisers, in this case Grapevine, and myself as head postmaster of the area in which they will operate. Yes, and I'm sure that every subscriber to Grapevine appreciates the provision of this service. I agree, and on behalf of my staff I'd like to say how pleased we are to be able to help. Well, Jackie, if we could now turn to something more personal, can you tell us, please, something of your early career in the post office? Yes. I started directly from school, working as an assistant, serving behind the post office counter at a small local sub-office, which was about as good a grounding as one could have. From there, I moved to Great Yarmouth head office, working as a telegraphist, which was where we first met, wasn't it, Daisy? Yes, it was indeed. Yes. I'm sure that, like me, you remember our struggles trying to deal with the fish merchants and all their literally hundreds of telegrams. Such a pity that those days, like Yarmouth's herrings, are now just memories. Yes, I'm sure there are many people who regret the departure of the fishing fleet. Yes. Anyway, after working for a couple of years as telegraphist, I was appointed a postal officer, working first as a counter clerk and later in administration behind the scenes. In 1967, I qualified as postal executive and moved to take up an appointment in Colchester Head Post Office. Three years later, I moved into our Eastern Regional Headquarters with a higher grading. I had a very interesting five years there, most of which was spent in helping to develop the regional team in our newly formed Postal Marketing Department. And was that so very different from the work you had done previously? Yes. It gave me the opportunity to meet with representatives of outside industry and compare post office ways with theirs. You came back to Great Yarmouth as assistant head postmaster. Was there any particular reason for that? To an extent, it was the luck of the draw. When on a panel for promotion, you have to choose among vacancies which become available. It was my good fortune that a vacancy occurred locally at just the right time. And in my case, lightning did strike twice with the subsequent opportunity to take over as head postmaster in my hometown. You must be very pleased to have been appointed to this very important job. Are there any things you particularly want to do locally? Well, you know, the post office is a huge organisation. In a nutshell, my job is to see that my area functions as well as it possibly can. How do you see the future of the post office in view of the government's recent decision to allow private deliveries? The situation is that the government is proposing to modify the post office monopoly, but it hasn't actually happened yet. At present, it is still the case that only the post office has the right to carry letters for other people. 
The effect on our future services will of course depend upon how far the government decides to relax the monopoly. If this does happen, will it have any particular effect locally? Locally, like post office people everywhere I imagine, we're rather hoping that any changes made won't be too drastic. I think it's important to realise that while there may be quite a few businessmen who jump at the chance to make money by carrying letters between, say, London and Birmingham, there won't be quite so many willing to offer a service between Great Yarmouth and, say, Inverness. While, if the post office is expected to continue to provide a service from anywhere to everywhere, it is going to cost a lot more if the plum routes are creamed off. Of course, our standard isn't all it might be. We could and should do better. But I'd suggest that any organisation big enough to do a comparable job is going to come up against very similar problems. Yes, I do agree with you there. And Jackie, how do you see yourself now that you are the boss? How approachable are you to your staff? Well, the simple fact is we're a team. Between us we have a job to do and we each have our own contribution to make. Remember, it's a team I've been a part of in many capacities, from office junior right up to the top. So I hope I know how to value every member of it. And in their turn, they know that I can appreciate their problems. In fact, it would be very difficult for me to be unapproachable. And yes, I remember when we worked together in telegraphs, although of course discipline was stricter in those days, we did have a very good team spirit. And how do you relax from this very demanding job? Have you any hobbies and outside interests? Well, Daisy, I might say that top of my list is keeping up old and valued friendships. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and like most women, I enjoy knitting and sewing, and I'm quite a keen gardener. I also love dancing, which gets me out and about quite a bit. Other interests are swimming and photography, which I usually combine with my holidays. And where do you usually take your holidays? I like touring in Britain with my car. I'm also a sun worshipper and like to find a place in the sun abroad wherever possible. In this respect, I am fortunate in having a pen friend dating from our school days. She now lives near Biarritz and the opportunity to visit her is always there. Yes, I know that you spent your holiday in Crete this year to relax before taking up your new job. And as you still have quite a few years ahead of you, Jackie, have you any further ambitions for your career in the post office? Not really. I think I've achieved as much as anyone could reasonably hope for. Of course, no one knows what the future holds, which is probably just as well, but I don't have any other job in my sights. Thank you, Jackie. Well, my guest today has been Miss Jackie Nichols, Yarmouth's First Lady Head Postmaster. I would like, her, like to thank her for coming along and hopefully we shall be able to talk to her again on some future occasion. So with our best wishes to all of you, from Jackie Nichols and myself, this is Daisy Cannell saying goodbye everyone. Many thanks to our Grapevine interviewer, Daisy Cannell. Still to come in this week's edition of Grapevine, our weekly recipe, Roadworks report and CAB information, tasters, flying fish, and of course the rest of this week's news. However, it's very nearly time for you to turn the tape over and so to take you to that point some suitable tape end music, Bert Comfort and his orchestra with that happy feeling.